Well, it is really good to be back with all of you. And uh, you've been, uh, we've been going through a series on the, uh, what we call the book of Philippians in the uh, New Testament. And it's actually a letter that was written by, I think, arguably the um, greatest Christian missionary who ever lived, and that was the Apostle Paul, Paul of Saul of Tarsus previously, but he became the Apostle Paul. And uh, he spread the message of Christ all through the known world uh, in his day as far as Rome. And he wrote letters everywhere. He just wrote letters to all these churches. Uh, they didn't have email back then, Facebook, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, basically people would carry letters when he wanted to send a message to a faraway place. And one of those letters was written to uh, Christians in the city of Philippi. And as we were preparing this series of messages, we got about a month left to go before we start a new series. Um, you know, I was praying over this and saying, Lord, what should we title this series? And, and it really, I felt very, very strongly that this series should be called The Good Life. The Good Life. And uh, you'll, you'll notice when you read through this letter, uh, which is four chapters in the New Testament, uh, that... Um, the repeated themes in this letter are themes like joy, um, contentment, peace, and gratitude. And yet, when he wrote this letter, he was in prison. He was, he was in prison for his faith, and yet somehow he found joy, peace, contentment, and gratitude in the midst of all that. And so really, if you were to ask him, Paul, are you living the good life? I think he would have said, yeah, I am living the good life. But for, I think most people today, if you were to ask them what the good life is, you know, what does it mean to live the good life? I think you'd probably get things like, well, it would mean having a great career, a uh, big house, um, a good family, uh, to be healthy, uh, have lots of friends on Facebook, followers on Twitter, and all that kind of stuff. But that would be the good life, is to have all these things that we so often chase after. Um, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, and, and I have concluded that I think there's four primary motivators that people have in life. Uh, one motivator in life is, is the pursuit of pleasure. You know, just, just to, you know, everybody is made for pleasure. We all love to please ourselves. And, uh, you know, pleasure can be having, you know, your favorite dish made for you. It could be entertainment, food, a whole variety of things. But there are a lot of people that in their lives, they're, what they're all about is the pursuit of pleasure. That's hedonism. Um, other people, it may not be that so much, but it might be the pursuit of prestige. Um, to, to be successful and to be ad admired by other people. Uh, to be the center of attention. Maybe even to be famous. For a lot of people, uh, what they pursue in life is to be recognized and to be admired. Uh, for others, it goes deeper than that. It's really more about a achievement. You know, not so much about pursuing pleasure or even prestige. I... I just want to achieve something. Even if nobody knows my name, there are a lot of people, people who've won the Nobel Prize or the Nobel Peace Prize who we would never know. We don't even know who they are. We never hear about them. But they have made a difference in the world. And for a lot of people, what they pursue is to achieve something, to accomplish something that's going to make a difference. And I think that's quite honorable. 
For other people, it's altruism. It, it, it really is all, all about being compassionate. It's about um, sacrificing my own needs and my own desires for the sake of other people. Um, I will lay down my life so that other people's lives can be improved. I can make the world a better place. And for a lot of people, Mother Teresa was about that. She wasn't about achievement. She wasn't about prestige or image. Uh, she wasn't about pleasure. She was all about being altruistic, about being compassionate and making a difference that way. Now, the question is, you could, you could chase after all of these things. But the question is, is it really what we want? And is it what we were made for? Is it enough to have that? I think of, out of all of those, achievement and altruism are probably the two things that would make the biggest difference in the world. That might be enough. Jim Carrey, the, who's Canadian, comedian, actor, he's very, very rich, um, very wealthy in monetary terms. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. You know, for somebody who's not a believer in Christ, and for somebody who's had it all, and has lived life, the good life on human terms, in worldly terms, to say that, it's not the answer. That really resonates with me. For a lot of people, the pursuit of happiness is what life is all about. But that's a hoax. That's an empty dream. There's got to be something more than the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of success and prestige and image and power and achievement and all that. There's got to be more. Because there are people who've attained all that and found when they looked inside that they were hollow and that they were empty. But the Apostle Paul found peace and contentment and joy even when all of that was stripped away from him. How was that possible? Well, it is only possible for a Christian. Um, so what is it that you want out of life? I don't assume that just because you're, that we're all Christians here today that we all want the same thing out of life. That's why we have church, by the way. That's why we have Bible study and small groups and things like that because we all have to be reminded about what's important in life. And that's really what this series, The Good Life on Philippians, is all about, is to remind us about what's important in life. What would make you want to leap out of bed in the morning um, rather than drag yourself out of bed in the morning? What makes your heart beat a little bit faster, gets you excited, gets you pumped up in life? I'm no different than most of you. Um, sometimes I struggle. Uh, I, 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 I love pleasure. Um, I love to be entertained. Uh, I love food a whole lot. I love all the same things everybody else loves, but if I live for those things, I'm going to be sadly disappointed. It's empty in the end. If I told you that prestige or my image didn't matter at all, that what people thought of me didn't matter at all, I think I'd be lying a little bit. You know, I, I've met people who say, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I go, no, you know, you probably care more than you think you do. The very fact that you would say that out loud tells me that you do care about what people think of you because you want people to think about you that you, they, that you don't care what they think about you. <laughs> that you're somehow above all that. 
that you're somehow above all that, that you're a cut above all the rest. And the fact is, sometimes that, that does bother me. I worry about what people think about me sometimes. And I, I've been woken in the night sometimes wondering if I measure up to other people's expectations. Um, sometimes I feel like I'd like to accomplish more with my life. Uh, I'm, I'm at you know, the late 60s, and, 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 and I feel like, you know, sometimes I have these moments when I evaluate, have I done enough, Lord, for you? And I want to be more, and I want to do more with my life. But, you know, I struggle with the same things you do. But the thing that I've been reminded of, and as we go through this series, and as I've meditated upon uh, this letter to the Philippians, um, and I've memorized a lot of the passages in Philippians, and many of you have as well, uh, it occurs to me that the good life is a life that is lived on God's terms, not mine. That's what the good life is. If you're a Christian, there really is no other conclusion but that the good life, if you want the good life today, a life that is filled with meaning and purpose, it must be a life that is lived on God's terms, not mine. So what are you willing to sacrifice in order to live life on God's terms? You're saying, what, does it mean some kind of sacrifice? Uh, yeah, it does. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, salvation, all of that is a gift from God. But God does ask us, Jesus asked us and said, take up your cross and follow me. He actually says in Luke, he said, if, you, if you're not prepared to give up everything you have to follow me, you're not worthy of me. What would we be willing to trade in order to live this good life on God's terms? And we know this is how it works in real life. If you said to me, I want to have a healthy relationship with my spouse. I want to have a happy marriage. Well, is there some sacrifice involved in that? Is there, are there some things that maybe you need to give up in order to have a, a satisfying marriage relationship? Absolutely there is. It means that you need to listen. We need to listen and not just speak. It means that we can't always get our own way. It means that sometimes we've got to realize that we, that we said the wrong thing, that, that we were rude or insensitive, and sometimes we have to apologize I've got to give up my pride. I've got to sacrifice that. I've got to lay that down. If I want to have healthy relationships, there's a, I can't just get my own way all the time. Otherwise, my relationships are fractured. A healthy relationship requires the sacrifice of many things. But oh, the payoff, the reward is so worth it. A good career. Does a good career... Require sacrifice. Ask, okay, Rob Snow, did that require any sacrifice at all for you to get your, your doctorate? Absolutely it did. We can ask others of you. David Falk over there, many of you. We have a lot of highly educated people here in this room today. Did that require sacrifice? Not only in monetary terms. Were there times when you had a paper that was due, like a term paper, a research paper, or maybe you had an exam coming and everybody was out having a party and they invited you to come and join them and you had to say, no, you know, i got to stay in tonight and study because it requires sacrifice. Anything worthwhile requires sacrifice. What are you willing to sacrifice to live the good life on God's terms? Or having a body that's fit 
and healthy requires sacrifice. It actually requires a certain amount of pain. It is painful for me. I love, okay, I got it. I like sugar. My wife Colleen is sitting here, and she knows what my favorite treat is, okay? And uh, I love it, and, and I just, I, I do love sugar, and I will deny myself sugar throughout the day so I can have my favorite snack later in the day. But I, I love chocolate. I love sweets. I really do. But I have to say no. And when I say no, when, when we go to one of our first church dinners or something like that, and there's always dessert. Have you ever noticed that? You know, Christians gather. Sometimes we don't, we have, sometimes we don't even have fruit or vegetables or anything else. We just have dessert sometimes when we gather. And I am t- as tempted as anybody else when I see that. It is painful for me to turn away from that. Because I love it. But I know that when... Christmas is coming, and I know there's, I got to tell you, we had so much sugar and baking and sweets. Anybody else have that problem at Christmas time? It, like, (laughs) and people give it to us. And you know what? I know what they did is they re-gifted it because they didn't want it in their house. (laughs) Because I know when you give us chocolates, someone gave you chocolates last year, and we're getting your old stale chocolates. (laughs) But we've got this stuff like, it's just everywhere. We still have some leftover. And the fact is, so I know Christmas is coming, and there's going to be turkey, and there's going to be ham, and there's going to be all this stuff. And so, you know what I do, and this is the painful part, is, you know, I still want to be healthy. I still want to stay fit. So I know I'm going to eat more. And it's hard not to because I'm on vacation. And when I'm on vacation, it's really because I'm not focused on anything else. I'm focused on food. And, uh, and so I know I'm going to have to hit the gym harder. You know, and so I'm just, you know, working up a sweat and my t-shirt is just absolutely drenched. It's just like it came out of the washing machine, you know. But we know that if anything is worthwhile, if there's something we really want, we have to sacrifice for it. You can't just have a goal. There's all kinds of people that have goals, but they never write them down. They don't pursue their goals. They just, you know, there's no discipline to it. There's got to be some willingness to sacrifice to experience a certain degree of pain for something worthwhile, whether it's relationships, a career, your fitness, your health, whatever. So if we want the reward, if we want to get our hands on the prize at the end of the day, we've got to be willing to do what it takes. We have to embrace the struggle to get there. And a meaningful life, folks, involves struggle. I think we all know this. Sometimes we lament the fact that life is a struggle. Um, don't, don't lament that. Don't, don't feel like that's wrong. Life is a struggle. We know if you read the story of Jesus and read what the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says about him, he struggled. It wasn't easy for Jesus. He was tempted in every way, just as you and I are but he was without sin. But he struggled. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed by Judas and he knew what was facing him, crucifixion. And, you know, there, there was that struggle of, Father, this is going to be horrible. You know, in my flesh, I don't want to do it, but let your will be done. There was struggle there. I remember when I was 14 years old, and the Beatles were out, and all these bands like the Rolling Stones, and all these guys had come out. And uh, how many of you, by the way, ever saw the Beatles in 1964 in February 
when they were on Ed Sullivan. How many of you are old enough to remember that? Okay. Wow. A whole bunch of you. Okay. So, and I was just enamored. I thought, I want to do that. And so I begged my mother at the age of 14 to get me a guitar. And this, we were a single family. There was me and my two, my two sisters and a single mom living in a basement suite in Medicine Hat. My mother, it was really hard. And so she surprised me two days before my 15th birthday. It was on a Friday. I came home from school, and there was an electric guitar, a silver tone guitar, and a harmony amplifier with a curly little cord that went into it. And then I tried to teach myself, and it was so hard, and so she signed me up. So not only did she pay for the guitar that she couldn't afford, now she had to pay for guitar lessons. And i got to tell you, talk about sacrifice. I was so focused on learning how to play the guitar. Um, I went through all seven books, the Mel Bay Guitar Course, in record time. My guitar teacher, John Fike, after a year and a half, like I just raced through this thing. I practiced hours and hours a day. I drove my sisters crazy. And, and, uh, cause you know, electric guitar without an amplifier, you know what that sounds like? It's tinky, tinky, tinky. You know, like it's just this metallic sound that's really like awful in the background. And, um, But I remember the focus that I had on that. And I remember how hard it was. But I wanted, I I just wanted the reward of being accomplished on the guitar so badly. Many of you know what I'm talking about. That could be in the realm of maybe not music, but maybe in athletics. Anything worthwhile requires sacrifice. I also remember, um, I I quit school and so I, I didn't have my high school matriculation. Uh, I was at the age of 23, and my friend, Brenda, my friend, Brenda Congdon was her name at that time. She had just uh, got her BSW from, uh, I think, the U of A, uh, Bachelor of Social Work. And uh, she said, Brian, when are you going to go back to school and finish your education? You need to get your, finish your high school. So she took me by the hand, got me registered at Medicine at College, and, and I started my high school upgrading to get my, you know, my uh, uh, grade uh, 11 and 12 um, math, my grade 11 and 12 physics, chemistry, all that kind of stuff. And Colleen met me around this time. And I remember the summer, I, wanted, I, I was reading this book by, uh, on Albert Einstein and the, the special and general theories of relativity. And I did not know much about this at all. I didn't know much about physics. And I remember reading this and about how he thought about the universe and gravity and all this. And I was fascinated. And I didn't have the math skills or anything, but I thought, this is what I want to do, is I want to study physics. And so what happened is I did really, really well in my upgrading for my matriculation, got all that done, um, and knew Colleen at that time. I'd just gotten saved. I became a Christian. And I remember... um, that summer, I needed to get chemistry. I wanted to start my first year as a physics major, but I had no chemistry. I had never been in a lab. I didn't even know what a Bunsen burner was. I didn't, like, didn't know any of that stuff. So here I had finished everything but my chemistry. I taught myself chemistry in the four months in the summer. Out of a, it was a white chemistry book. I don't know if Colleen remembers it. And what I did is I, I went in at the uh, end of August and they, I said, can I write a test to show that I can do this? And they let me into first-year chemistry without ever having gone through high school chemistry. And they said, and I remember uh, George Matthews, who was my physics professor, he said, Brian, I don't think you've got what it takes to study physics. 
you may love it, but I don't think you've got the mind for it. I don't think you've got what it takes. Well, that was the wrong thing to say. Okay. And so what happened is uh, I did really, really well in my studies, but I want to tell you, my eye was on the goal to the point where I was just completely undaunted because I could taste it. I wanted that so badly. And that's just something really kind of worldly, really. That, that, that in Learning the guitar, studying physics, and wanting to do something so badly that I was willing to make all these crazy sacrifices in order for that to be accomplished. But that was living life on my terms. That was not what God wanted for me. What are God's terms for each one of us? What are the terms for living the good life? Well, the Apostle Paul really summarized it in one verse that we've already looked at a few weeks back, and that is Philippians 1.21, where he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, the good life is a life with Christ at the center, and to die, even if I die and I shed this body, I've got all of eternity in front of me. Paul, the apostle, did not pursue happiness. Did Jesus, was he about the pursuit? I got to be happy? Was he about the pursuit of happiness? Was it about success? Was it about wealth? Was it about a big house? Was it about a fancy car? No, was it about any of that? The Apostle Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ on a road leading to the city of Damascus. He was going in the wrong direction and he was living life on his own terms. And he met Christ. He had a, what we call a Damascus Road experience. And everything in his life was kind of turned upside down. At least that's how it felt. And you can read in these verses, Pastor Blaine spoke on this a couple of weeks ago. But you can read it up there. He said, all the things that were gains to me, everything I had going for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And he says a little bit further on in that passage, I consider all the stuff that I had garbage, rubbish, trash compared to knowing Jesus Christ. For him, knowing Christ was more important than anything else. And Paul, here's the thing. Paul was not some loser who was down on his luck when he met Christ. His life was, as far as he was concerned, everything was going the way it was supposed to. His plan was unfolding as it should. That might be you today. Maybe you're at a place in your life, at, he was a religious guy. He was religious. He believed in the God of Abraham. He believed in the scriptures. But he was not living life on God's terms. He was living them on his own terms. And he was not some loser. He was very successful. He had the prestige, the admiration, 
the credentials, the success, achievements. Far ahead. Look at this next passage here. And Pastor Blaine touched on this. In the very, very early part of Philippians chapter 3, he said, if anybody could put confidence in the flesh, meaning in themselves, being like a self-made person, he said, I would have reasons for such confidence. He said, and he's now speaking as a Jew. And here's, you know, here's what he was proud of. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was Jewish of the people of Israel. I was, I'm, a, I'm from the right stock, the tribe of Benjamin. That was my pedigree. I was a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. As far as the law was concerned, I was a Pharisee. And he goes on. And this was his curriculum vitae. You know, he was saying, this, this is who I was. I had everything. But he said, I threw it all away. I threw it all away because I believed that knowing Christ and following Christ was that much more important. For Paul, life, the good life, was life lived with Christ at the center of it all. So now we get to the passage I want to talk about. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. And here he says, not that I've already taken, attained of all this or have already taken hold of it, of everything that I want from God. I don't claim to have yet attained to the goal of becoming like Christ. But he said, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul in verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal. That was his testimony. He said, I'm not saying I've arrived at the goal, at the destination, but I am pressing on towards the goal. And the goal was to know Christ to follow him, and to be like him. What does it mean to know somebody? You know, there's a lot of people who know about Christ, but they don't know him. Um, To know somebody means that you know them personally. It's an intimate knowledge. You've, you've had shared experiences, um, shared joys, shared victories, shared suffering, shared losses. Colleen and I have been married. Coming this year, it'll be 45, 45 years? Wow. She doesn't look old enough to have been married 45 years, does she? But 45 years. Do you think I know my wife? Do you think she knows me? You know, we know each other very, very well. Not, not just because we're married. And, and not just because we live in the same home. That really helps. Because you can be married and you can live in the same whole home, but you can live completely parallel lives. But our lives have intersected in a very, very deep way. I know her and she knows me. 
We've had many, many deep, intimate conversations over the years. I think I could say we probably know each other's deepest fears, hopes, dreams, sorrows, worries, frustrations. You know, if somebody was ever to accuse my wife of something, and I would think, you know, that's really out of character for her, I, I, could say, I think I could safely say, you know what? I will give her the benefit of the doubt because I think I know her well enough to know she would not do that. That's what it means to know somebody. And uh, the Apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ. He was talking about intimacy with Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, he's talking about people who just have religion, who, just have, who are legalistic, and it's all about rules. He said, we are the ones who worship God in the Spirit. That's what he says at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. And I can know Christ through the Holy Spirit who lives in me, and I need to nurture that relationship. I want to ask you, what was Jesus' greatest miracle? Who wants to tell me? What do you think, is great? what do you think was Jesus' greatest miracle? Anybody? What was his greatest miracle? I know. You're, I wouldn't want to shout it out either. Anybody? So you got an idea? What's that? Lazarus. Lazarus. I thought somebody would say that. Actually, that was not. Raising Lazarus from the dead was not his greatest miracle. His greatest miracle is found in John 10, 18. Jesus said, I have authority to lay down my life. No one takes it from me. And I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus' greatest miracle was raising himself from the dead to the glory of God the Father. That was his greatest miracle. And so if you go back a couple of slides, uh, the first part of this passage here, Aaron, if you can just find it. Okay, uh, yeah, there you go where he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. That's why we sang that song earlier. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power, I forget the rest of the words, but he says, the same power that moves mountains when he speaks. The same power that calms the raging sea lives in us. And he's saying here, I want to know that power. And in Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says that we do have that same power living within us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that caused him to ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. He said that same power lives in us if we will accept it. He said, I want to know that power. And that's why he said earlier in Philippians chapter 3, I put no confidence in the flesh. I put no confidence in my power, in my wisdom. I'm reading um, a book by Watchman Nee, who was a Chinese Christian who spent his latter days in prison under Mao Zedong in China. And he, it, the book is called The Spiritual Man. And it's a big, thick tome like this. It's like three volumes long. And I read it in part for my devotions. But in that book, he says, we need to come to the place in life where we stop trusting ourselves. 
And I have to tell you, my instinct still, I struggle to not look to myself first, but to look to the Lord first. I still struggle with that, to say the power is in Him and the wisdom is found in Him, not in myself. And so for Paul, it was all about his pursuit of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about success. It was about significance. But he also says in that passage, if we bring that slide up again, he also says in that passage, I, I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to know the fellowship of participating in his sufferings. What? He said, I can't just know his power if I don't also know his pain. I need both of my life. I need to be willing to walk the journey with him. And that means sometimes we need to walk away from things that are secondary in life. I want to tell you the story of a man called James Barnett. His picture's going to come up here. James Barnett. He's a young man, U.S. citizen. This guy, uh, he was born in 1985, so he'd be about 34 years old. As a young man, after he graduated from university, he began working for the investment firm uh, J.P. Morgan and Chase, New York City. He was making close to, as a man in his mid-20s, he was making close to a six-digit salary. He was upwardly mobile. He had it all. He, had, he was already aiming at the good life. He was raised as a Christian. He was a Christian. But somehow he had rationalized that, that what he was doing was God's will. But he said the Lord spoke to him in a very, very, very deep way and said, I want you to walk away from your career at J.P. Morgan and Chase, and I want you to come follow me. And he followed him onto the streets. And he actually lived homeless. He said, because I wanted to learn what it feels like to be homeless. And I want to be the friend of the homeless. And how can I be their friend if I don't experience what they've experienced? That's what it meant for him. And so the Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, everything that I ever thought was success, and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal, whatever that goal is for me, whatever it is on God's terms, I want that more than anything else, and I will sacrifice everything else in order to have that. Because it's not about me and about living life on my terms. Well, God doesn't ask everybody to leave their career. Whew. What are you willing to sacrifice to know Christ? I, I, I mean to know Him intimately and to follow Him through even the deepest pain in order that you can know His power in your life. There's a man by the name of Bob Chapman. I read a book of his this last fall. It's a book on business. I discovered that Bob Chapman is a Christian businessman. He runs a $3 billion global corporation called the Barry Waymiller Company. Bob Chapman. 
He's also written a book called Truly Human Leadership. This man's a Christian, but he's a businessman. He didn't walk away from that. He didn't do what James Barnett did and go live on the streets. Because God had a different plan for him. The goal was the same. Pursue Christ and put him at the center. But it had a different manifestation. For him, he wrote this book, and I forget the name of it right offhand that I've read. You think I would know the name of the book? Oh yeah, it's called uh, Everybody Matters. In 2008, you remember what happened right before Barack Obama was elected president? Remember the financial crisis? Remember all that? And what happened is there were businesses and companies everywhere, people that were laying people off, they were downsizing, and all these people, and it, it was a terrible time. And what happened is he had already come to some conclusions about the way a Christian should run his company before that happened. And he said, okay, now we're going to get a chance to find out if this really works. You know what he did? He didn't fire anybody. He didn't lay anybody off. Nobody lost their job, but they were facing dire straits. And Bob Chapman, this man, who if you read about him, puts Christ first, puts him at the center. This man said, we believe in the dignity of our employees. We want our employees, when they finish a day of work, they're going to go back to their families happy and refreshed. They're going to walk in the door at supper time after a good day's work and they're going to know that they were appreciated and they were loved, that they mattered. And how can we tell them that if we just say to you, hey, well, you know, we're falling on hard times. I, as the CEO and the chairman of Barry Waymiller, will continue to earn my million-dollar salary while you all lose your jobs. And that's hypocrisy. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. He, he, he went down to, I think it was like a $10,000 salary. So he said, it's got to start at the top. It's going to start with me. And he said, everybody's going to take a, a wage rollback. And then one of the things they did, they said, everybody's going to take a one week off a year without pay across the whole company. Nobody's going to lose their job, but everybody's, going to, everybody's wages are going to be rolled back a little bit. Everybody's going to take a week off without pay. And so we even it out. So everybody makes the sacrifice. Now, who runs a business like that? And you know what happened? So one guy, let's call him Jack, he looks over at Fred and he says, you know what, Fred can't afford to take that week off without pay. I make more money and my wife's got a good job. I'm going to take his week off without pay. I'll take two weeks off without pay so he can work. So now it became this sort of what we call it, like this egalitarian thing that was going on. Like everybody's looking out for everybody else. It wasn't dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest. So this man who pursues Christ in his life and puts him at the center, the message to him was not leave your business. No, but do your business in a Christ-like way. And you serve the people that work for you. They matter. Let them go home with their dignity. And that's how he, and there's a whole story on that. So you can read that Truly Human Leadership. You could get the book Everybody Matters if you want me to remind you of the title, ask me for it. But that, that resonates with me. That just, oh, there's a moral center. 
Christ is our moral center. Everything else, like he's at the same, it doesn't mean that you don't have fun. It doesn't mean that you don't experience pleasure. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, eat good food or enjoy life or have another job or what. All it means is everything is centered on Christ. Your relationship with Christ influences everything else that you do in life. It starts with him at the center. There's a moral center. So Jesus is the organizing principle of my life. Everything else is organized around that. And so basically I'm saying, would you risk it all on Jesus? That's what the Apostle Paul did. I want to just risk it all on Jesus. I'd like to be a guy like Bob Chapman or James Barnett. Whatever that is for you. So in closing, is the goal that you're chasing after in life, is it worthy of the Lord? I'm not asking if you're a Christian. You know what? As Christians, and even myself as a Christian, I've chased after things that were not worthy of God. All the while saying, I I love the Lord. But he wasn't at the center. Oh, he was in my life, but he was off over here a little bit. He was pushed to the margins. Put him right at the center. Put him on the throne of your existence. Make him your sovereign, your king, your Lord. Is the thing that you're chasing after in life, will it matter in eternity? Because you know what? It all begins with you. If you be the change, folks, be the change. Be the change. If he changes you, you can change everything around you, one relationship at a time. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you that you have given us an example to follow. Yes, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross. You bore our pain, our sorrow. You bore our sins. And you rose from the dead and ascended into heaven so that we could experience your power, the power to live life on God's terms and not our own, the power to receive forgiveness of sins, to have a clean conscience before God, to live in a way that is pleasing to you. But Lord Jesus, you provided an example for us to follow. And you've given us your Holy Spirit who lives in us so we can know you, we can have an intimate knowledge of you. We can know you and walk the path that you walked. And we can imitate you. And we can't do that on our own. But you inspire us, Jesus. And I pray that we would pursue Christ beyond all else. May you be at the center of everything in our lives. And I just want to ask, as our heads are bowed in prayer, this week, and begin right now, would you 
do a spiritual evaluation of your life. Actually, let me rephrase that. Would you allow the Lord to do a spiritual evaluation of your life? And would you be willing to bring yourself, maybe later today or in the morning when you have your devotions, your time with God, to say, Lord, before I do anything else, what do you see in me? Where does Christ fit into my existence, my values, my priorities, my relationships? Would you be willing to say, Lord, what are you asking of me? Would you be willing to listen? Like, really listen. What if the Lord's asking you to be another James Barnett and maybe do something that's going to be radical and right, you know, outside the box? Maybe it would mean you need to have a complete change of direction in your life. Maybe it means walking away from everything that you ever thought was important. Would you be willing to do that? Would I? Or maybe it means you're to stay put, but you're to repurpose it. Would you be willing sometime today or tomorrow to bring yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, what are you asking of me? What do you see? And that would be, that could be a very awkward time. And a very, very painful experience. But oh, it'd be so worth it. We can't have the reward without the struggle. Would you be willing to say with the Apostle Paul, I press on toward the goal. Forgetting what is behind. And straining towards what is ahead. I press on. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. It is really great to be with you again. Go in peace.